640 Toronto presents Think Tank, the breaking stories you care about. Please tell me. Okay, I'll tell you. The backstories you don't know yet. That's my question. Facts and opinions that get you through your day. You never know what you're going to get. And now let's meet the guests. Let's do that. But first, a reminder: Southbound DVP, major, major problem this morning. Uh, it's the big north-south way into the city. Southbound DVP approaching the Gardner, blocked by a crash. I had nothing to do with it. I was on that uh, that route two hours ago. I left no debris behind or anything. But there is a truck sideways. Emergency crews on the scene. We'll keep you posted on that as the morning continues. Fine, we'll keep you posted on it. I promise we will. I know you're angry in your car right now on that route. Uh, let's meet our guests. Our guests are Warren Kinsella from the National Post in Toronto. Son, it's great to have you back. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, we bring on um, now he's listed on his new home, the Trillium at the Trillium.ca as veteran broadcaster and author with an unparalleled knowledge of provincial. Po- Let's try and parallel him today, Warren. We're going to parallel. You know how the kids ratio people on Twitter. We're going to parallel Steve Pakin's uh, knowledge of provincial politics. It's great to have you. You know that. I think they got a little too excited when they wrote that <laughs> over at the trillion. Yeah. Parallel it, me all you like. At least you're veteran. When when some people say legendary broadcaster, I assume someone's dead. So you're here, like legend kind of often does mean you're dead, unless it's living legend, the living words in front of the legend part. So you're in good shape. Let's go with veteran. Let's go. Yeah, for <laughs> safer. If your oxygen is working, it's veteran. Uh, exactly. Let's start here, guys. Um, it's it's big news, I think. And we were a little chit chat via email last night. Joe Biden will visit Israel uh, tomorrow. Here's the expectations and the new deal, in essence, between the United States and Israel. Um, here's the secretary of state for the U.S., Anthony Blinken. The United States and Israel have agreed to develop a plan that will enable humanitarian aid from donor nations and multilateral organizations to reach civilians in Gaza, and them alone, including the possibility of creating areas to help keep civilians out of harm's way. We share Israel's concern that Hamas may seize or destroy aid entering Gaza, or otherwise preventing it from reaching the people who need it. If Hamas in any way blocks humanitarian assistance from reaching civilians, including by seizing the aid itself, we'll be the first to condemn it, and we will work to prevent it from happening again. Okay, Warren, any observation about uh, Joe Biden visiting? It's it's obviously quite significant. It'll get a ton of coverage. Um, but anything that, that jumps out at you about the significance of this visit tomorrow? Well, I think it's high risk. It's high risk for him. I mean, obviously, the Israelis cannot launch uh, the ground invasion into Gaza when the president of the United States is present. They right. just can't do that. So I guess that's good news for Gaza. The risk for Biden is if he only merely slows down the bloodshed, it'll be seen as a failure. You know, he needs to fully stop it. However, however, um, there's been a bunch of polls done in the past 72 hours in the United States, and more than 80 percent of Americans are on side with Israel or feel not enough is being done. So, you know, domestically, I think he, he's OK. But I mean, the expectations are pretty high when you send a president of the United States into a war zone. Uh, you got to deliver. So he needs to get aid going to southern Gaza, where there's 600,000 Palestinians who've moved. And he needs to set up safe zones in southern Gaza. And if anybody's been to Israel and been to Gaza, as I have, you know, that that's a tall proposition because Gaza is pretty small. Steve, is there an element of that? There's not a lot of historical context to Ronald Reagan going to, to Lebanon in the mid 80s or, or George Herbert. Walker Bush going over to Iraq when Operation Desert Storm is on. Do you agree with Warren there's that element of risk here? 
I do. Uh, I would uh, sign on to everything Warren just said, and I would add one other thing. Let's remember, this is the United States government sending an 80-year-old man uh, who is in rather fragile health, it looks like from time to time, into the most dangerous neighborhood in the whole world right now. So never mind the political implications Mm. about what they're trying to do. And I agree with Warren. uh, They can't launch a ground invasion with the president of the United States there. They have to wait for him to leave. They also need to assure his safety. And that's not necessarily going to be the easiest thing in the world to do. You can just imagine uh, how much delight Hamas would take if they were able to shoot some rockets at Air Force One as it was landing in Israel. So that's another thing to keep in mind here. You you do wonder as well, Warren, the idea of, look, everybody uses the phrase photo op. And we all, all three of us, understand why politicians have to do it. But given that there's only so many arteries to get to Tel Aviv Airport, there's there's a ton of vehicles on the road of desperate people who have decided to leave Gaza or are in motion. It just feels like a lot of, to be honest, a lot of black uh, SUVs and a lot of security personnel and armored vehicles. I feel like that ties things up a little bit. I could be wrong. No, you're right. And there is a risk, to use that word again, um, sending him in there because it looks like war tourism, right? It looks like mm-hmm. you're you're there for political purposes in the middle of abject uh, misery for both sides. You know, like I remember I used to advise the prime minister, full disclosure, Mr. Kretschian yeah. in 97. Actually, when I was running for him at that point, um, you know, there was the Manitoba flood. And it was terrible, and it was destroying homes and businesses. And the central campaign sent Kretschian in there, you know, to lift uh, sandbags. And it just didn't go over well. It was well-intentioned, but it just looked like kind of a little bit taking advantage of people's misery for public uh, political purposes. So that is, you're absolutely right, that is mm-hmm. a risk of Biden going in there today. Let's move to Toronto, Steve. I, uh, I know you and I were talking last week uh, off air. Um, temperatures were high. Tension was high. And, and I don't know that it's calming, um, but I've talked to people in, in both the Muslim community, the Jewish community as well, still a little bit worried, especially, especially sending kids to school, not for, not for terrorism or not for anything, just, just tension between kids of a, of, a, of a racial, cultural variety. What are you hearing right now from your friends and neighbors about, about just how they're feeling? I am talking to people on all sides about this. It's inevitable. This story is unavoidable. Uh, I note a story this morning in which one of the federal cabinet ministers, Yara Sachs, who is Jewish, represents York Center, has a daughter who wears the Star of David around her neck as a necklace. And uh, as you know, many Christian or Catholic people would wear a cross around their neck. And she apparently goes to school now and hides that Star of David, wants to be sure that she doesn't wear it on the outside, uh, lest it provoke some kind of response or trouble or something like that. I'm going to say something here that is going to be a little bit um, out there, but I think it's accurate. And that is to say, Greg, that um, the world is very much on Israel's side when Israelis are being killed by the thousands. And when the tide turns, as it inevitably does, because we've seen this movie before, And when Israel responds to the murder and slaughter of its uh, citizens and chooses to respond disproportionately, as they almost surely have and will, um, the narrative changes and the sympathy for Israel goes down. And one of the things that I'm hearing in conversations right now is how everybody figures that out. How do we Mm -hmm. continue to have sympathy for the slaughter of 1,200 Israelis and the taking of nearly 200 hostages? How do we have sympathy for for that terrible sneak attack 
and at the same time um, not lose that sympathy because Israel will respond in the way that it does. And I don't know if that's achievable. I'd really be interested to hear what Warren has to say on that. Go on, Warren, yeah. Well, it's true. Uh, there's a former Israeli government spokesperson at the UN, and I follow her on Twitter or whatever Twitter calls itself now. And, you know, she had a tweet this morning saying, I support Israel, except when they do this and accept this mm-hmm. and accept that. And that is the problem. That's unfair um, because Israel's held to a different standard, uh, unlike many of the nations surrounding it. It really is a beacon of democracy in the middle of a sea of tyranny and dictatorships. You know, it really is a place that like when people say Israel is an apartheid state, it just drives me bananas. Like words have meaning. There's no apartheid state that's successful that I can think of that has the discriminated against group, in this case, Palestinians, in the judiciary, in the legislature and in the military. But Israel does. As Palestinians in all of those places, that's not a very successful apartheid. There's an element of segregation. We'd call it that, right? We'd call the blockade an element of segregation, putting Palestinians into the occupied territories, right? But that is the two-state solution. It It is the Palestinian people seeking a homeland for themselves as favored by Abbas and the Palestinian Authority and the reasonable democratic alternatives to Hamas and Hezbollah. That is what they favor, and that's what they had. And there was actually relative peace over the past couple years in Gaza until Hamas attacked Israel. Not the other way around. Hamas attacked Israel. And, mm. But I want to stress, as I did last week, it's not the Palestinian people attacked Israel. Hamas did. Yeah, it's one of those can scenarios, I, too. Like, uh, yeah, break? please do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I note this morning that the king of Jordan and uh, previously, a couple of days ago, the prime minister of Egypt have both said that regardless of what is going on in Gaza, refugees who are Palestinian from that territory will not be permitted in their countries. So um, spare a moment to think about the poor Palestinian people here who are not only under attack thanks to Hamas's original sneak attack, they are not only under attack by Israel, but the two closest countries with which they feel some affiliation and who could extend a lifeline right now, their Arab brothers and sisters are not doing so. I don't know what we're supposed to make of that. That, that yeah, Egypt won't take the Palestinians in. Jordan won't take the Palestinians in. It's not nothing, Warren, but it's something. No, and it testifies to the fact. I mean, I asked the question as well last week. You know, these countries who virtue signal, use that phrase, in the direction of, of uh, Palestine, well, why aren't they helping Palestine out? Like Egypt, 48 hours ago, took concrete barriers and moved them quickly to the southernmost border of Gaza, which borders on Israel, to prevent anybody from getting out. And, yeah. like, you know, it's like, guys, you got to walk the talk. If you support Palestine yeah. and you support the Palestinian people, well, you should be helping them out. Instead, we've got a situation where the Israelis are holding off on a ground incursion and the president of the United States is coming there to try and help. It's very Mm. revealing. It's very telling. That's Warren Kinsella, Steve Pakin with him as well. This is Think Tank on 640 Toronto. I'm going to slide this into something that happened in Queen's Park yesterday with a similar amount of tension. But I just want to go quickly to the newsroom and update everybody on uh, this traffic collision. Dave Bradley's in our newsroom and Dave, you have the latest on uh, on some big time traffic snafus for our listeners. It is big time and it's unfortunate all southbound lanes of the Don Valley Parkway continue to be closed 
at the Gardner this hour. That is for a much earlier collision that uh, is in the process of getting cleaned up, but police haven't given, have given us any timeline as to when lanes will be reopened. There's a sliver of a lane in the shoulder, so you're able to get by, but it's just a trickle of traffic getting through there right now. So all lanes uh, southbound on the Don Valley Parkway remain closed as you approach the Gardner, and this is causing significant traffic headaches this morning. Dave, greatly appreciate it. All right, for uh, for Warren and Steve, I want to play a clip. This was Mart Style's first public comments uh, about Sarah Jama. Uh, this is the Ontario NDP leader referencing the hot water her Hamilton Centre MPP was in last week. Here's what she said. I haven't even looked at the motion, honestly. Uh, we've got two motions uh, before us. We we never, uh, I will discuss it with my caucus. We absolutely will look at it. But um, the one that I'm aware of uh, regarding MPP JAMA, I'm just, you know, my initial response is she did apologize. She did very clearly and unequivocally call out Hamas and um, for their uh, attack on Israeli civilians and the violence. And she 100% reaffirmed and committed to our federal party position. And and, uh, you know, I don't see what they could really want more than that. OK, let's dig into it. Warren, you wrote about it. Steve and I have talked about it. What's new is what I didn't expect at Queen's Park yesterday. The Ford Conservatives tabling the idea of censure, censuring um, NDP MPP Sarah Jamma, referencing conduct unbecoming, suggesting the speaker not even acknowledge her. That's a chess move I didn't see coming. Did you see something like that coming? Warren? If, if your opponent makes a mistake, if your opponent uh, sets themselves on fire, well, you know, sit back and have some popcorn. And that's what the Tories and to some extent the Liberals are doing. That clip you played of Merritt Stiles was, you know, the sound of a political leader trying to be in two lanes at once. And it's, it's not going to work. Either she condemns Hamas and has support for Israel as the victim or she doesn't. And, you know, yesterday they didn't have this MPP in the legislature to try and, you know, avoid the story, avoid what the Tories are doing. It's not going to work. They can't keep her away from the legislature indefinitely. It's her job. It's what she was elected to do, mm. regrettably. And she's got to show up and, you know, the, they're going to face the they're gonna, their feet are going to be put to the fire. Steve, thoughts on that? And given, again, your unmatched uh, Ontario political prowess, uh, any historical context or reference point for something so dramatic? That, that didn't happen in in the, in the legislature itself. Well, not like this. I know Randy Hillier, the controversial MPP from Eastern Ontario, was once censured by the Ontario legislature, but that was a different thing. This, look, at, there's two things going on here. Warren's quite right that Sarah Jamma made a mistake. Uh, when Hamas launched its attack on Israel, the first thing she did was to get out there and hashtag free Palestine essentially endorse what was going on. Uh, this is the second time that she's waded mm -hmm. into Middle East politics as the disability critic for the Ontario New Democrats. Um, it is not what you'd call being much of a team player. There is uh, a very much a desire by the Ontario NDP to keep the focus on the Ford government's malfeasance on the green belt right now, and uh, maybe Ontario Place as well, other difficulties there. And their ability to be an effective opposition is certainly harmed by Sarah Jamma freelancing. Uh, and well, here's another thing we have to keep in mind. Sarah Jamma is married to a Palestinian. She's 29 years old. She's been in politics for all of eight or nine months. She got elected last March. You put all those three things together and, you know, it's a bit of a recipe for difficulty at this moment. Uh, she has come forward and apologized, but she was essentially browbeaten into doing that by the 
uh, eminence grises of her party. So uh, it, it's, yeah. a, it's a real teachable moment for her. Either she's going to be a member of the Ontario legislature who keeps her eye on Middle East politics and freelances whenever she likes about her genuine uh, caring for the Palestinian cause, or she's going to be more of a team player going forward. And if she doesn't be more of a team player going forward, she's going to get kicked out eventually. Um, she's had two strikes, I think, in baseball and at Queen's Park, three strikes and you're out. Warren, I blame social media for all of this. We never would have asked a, a city councillor or a, a member um, in London Middlesex their opinion of of the Iran-Iraq war or or Watergate. It just feels like everybody's required to weigh in on everything now. And and I I'm everyone's outside their lanes. Warren, you got me okay? Yeah, everybody's got an opinion. Sorry, I was muted there. That's okay. Um, everybody's got an opinion, and, you know, so do we. And But, you know, you guys are quite right. This is not her job. Her job is to be the disability critic for the official opposition in the legislature of Ontario. And, um, you know, if you look at this woman's history, as I did last week in the column I wrote for Post Media, like she has consistently, repeatedly, over and over and over commented on this issue, which is not in her wheelhouse, it's not in her bailiwick, and uh, has gotten herself in trouble. And it's like, well, you know, I've been in politics, involved in politics for a long time. At a certain point, somebody becomes more trouble than they're worth. And Styles and the, the caucus, you know, why are they keeping her around when obviously she's more trouble than she's worth? Well, it's because I think a lot of them agree with her. I mean, t- things take time, right? I think we knew in the summer, Steve, a good example. Um, Marco Mendicino's not long for his cabinet post, and eventually it's more part of a larger shuffle here. It's different when you've got an MPP, but Steve, I, I, I haven't met a person yet that thinks she's going to be the nominee for the NDP in that riding in 2026. So this game ends at some point in time. That's definitely an open question at this stage because her caucus colleagues are definitely tired of this act. Let's also keep in mind and I'm not trying to get Marit Stiles off the hook here. I'm just pointing out the reality of the situation. She was not Marit Stiles' candidate. Right. Stiles was not the leader uh, when Sarah Jammer was picked to run in that by-election back in March. Uh, it was a, a, a by-election to replace Andrea Horvath. She was Horvath's candidate. Mm-hmm. Peter Tabins, I guess, was the interim leader who greenlit her. But now she is, no question, Stiles' responsibility to deal with. And we'll have to watch carefully how she deals with her going forward. All right. I want to slide to federal politics. Recent polls yesterday. We talked about it on Toronto Today from 338 Canada show a potential 190 seat windfall for the Pierre Polyev conservatives. Selena Cesar Chavan, the former liberal MP, big player in the Trudeau government in the uh, in the first run that they had in 2015, Though she did say, though it may be the low point for the Liberals, she's not ruling out some form of a comeback for the Trudeau Liberals. Here's what she said yesterday on Think Tank. It's still early. And the Conservatives, I've said this before, have had a propensity to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory. If the Conservatives want to maintain that momentum, they have to. But, uh, you know, it's, it's... it's too early. Right down at the end, that's where we, we if we still see these numbers, we, we may have a problem. Houston might have a problem inside of <laughs> Justin Trudeau's camp. Just let it play out because Teflon Trudeau manages to do something to, 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 keep, to keep his 
his victory to keep his seats. It's it's too early. Warren Kinsella, I know all the roadmaps are, are pointing in Pierre's direction, but it is that cautionary tale. You do underestimate Justin Trudeau at your own peril. Do you see any reason to be concerned at all that this is the low ebb and he may rise up and, and at least at minimum uh, prevent a majority government? Well, you know, I remember because I'm older than you young youngsters. Um, <laughs> I remember when Brian Mulroney was at 12 percentage points and, um, you know, his caucus was still behind him, but only 12 percent of Canadians supported him. Well, it wasn't an aberration like a, God knows. I don't want to disagree with pollsters. Pollsters never get anything wrong. <laughs> but like like the trend line here is pretty bad, you know, since mm-hmm. the month of May. Pierre Polyev has had a 10 to 15 point lead over the Liberals and the vote efficiency is, as guys like me call it, of the Liberal Party vote has disappeared in Atlantic Canada and Ontario in just about every region, with the exception of Quebec. The Liberal Party of Justin Trudeau, and that's an important distinction, it's not the Liberal Party of the past, is no longer winning. They're losing. So, yeah, Pierre Polyev is winning and he's looking at getting close to 200 seats if an election was held today. Steve, how do you view it? Is there a, is there a way back to prevent a majority in the next eight months, in the next 18 months even? I don't know. But I certainly, since I'm actually older than both of you guys, not combined, <laughs> but I am older than both of you guys, I well remember. And Warren, I don't know, help me remember. In 1986, when Ed Broadbent was at 50 percent in the polls, um, I seem to recall he did not go on to win that majority government that everybody was forecasting at that time. Some guy named Mulroney came back and won a second consecutive majority. Polls are a wonderful, actually quite accurate tool for telling the the public what they thought yesterday. They are not predictive, and it may well be the time's up on the liberals and the conservatives will go on to win 200 seats in two years' time when we have our next election. But you can't predict that today. That's not how it works. Let's move quick. I got we got a couple minutes left, and I want to ask you guys about this uh, photo of uh, of Blue Jays um, a Blue Jays pitcher hunting Canada geese. He's in Minnesota. It's legal for him to do. I get it. Geese aren't always friendly. It's it's not the smartest thing to give a four year old a piece of bread and tell him go feed that friendly goose. But it's a lot of it's a lot of murder for Eric Swanson, and the Blue Jays middle reliever. Steve, how how does this land? How's the photo land? I heard somebody say if he's eating them all, it's okay. If he's not, it's too much. How do you view it? I saw the photo, and it does look at it does. Uh, if if you live in a city and you're not used to hunting, and you see this picture of baseball player and son and dozens of dead birds. It does kind of rub you the wrong way. It feels a little bit out there. Having said that, you're right. He did nothing illegal. And in fact, you could argue that because of the overabundance of this kind of bird, he did a solid by uh, helping cull the herd. <laughs> Warren. <laughs> there's, there's a rule in politics which applies to professional sports. Never get photographed eating something. Never get photographed playing golf. And never get photographed with so many dead geese, you can't even <laughs> fit them all in the picture. <laughs> He looks like a total jerk. It's like, you know, he's not going to be eating all of them, I don't think. So, no, it looks terrible, and I would imagine the Blue Jays are going to have to do some cleanup in the coming days. I don't want him to apologize, though, because it'll be insincere, and he won't meet it, and he's going to keep hunting, but he won't post the photos of 17, right? Like, it would be a pretty – it'd be your, your trademark fake apology from an athlete, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, for sure. And like none of us really like chicken cobras, as they're called. That's right. Uh, they're, they're pretty nasty. <laughs> but like 17, like mm. I encourage people to go seek out the photograph. You're going to find it everywhere today. He's got mm. so many dead birds and his little boy with him. He can't fit them in the picture. It, it, yeah. It's not a good look. Steve, I love animals, but Jose Barrios-like accuracy, I think, from Eric Swanson with the with the rifle from a week and a half ago. It's too soon. For Blue Jays fans, they still see you say Kikuchi walking in with one man on in a tie game. But I digress. Oh, don't get me started on analytics. <laughs> don't get me started on analytics. I'm won't, not over that one yet. Won't do it. Loved having both you guys today. Thanks for bringing everything you brought. It was a great listen for me. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you. Warren Kinsella from the National Post and uh, the Toronto Sun. Steve Pakin.